Well, if you would, to continue in worship this morning, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we will continue by way of uh, exposition of the Scripture. And why don't we stand together, and I will read from Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. Let's stand. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, I ask that uh, you might, according to your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable me to communicate what's being declared here in these verses, to see something of the heart of your apostle, his humility, his thankfulness, his desire to encourage and exhort fellow believers and that he's not ashamed of your gospel. May you give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear that our hearts might be conformed more and more into your very image by way of the proclamation of your truth this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Here in verses 16 and 17, beloved, we see the theme of this epistle. I mean, this is the overarching theme that Paul wants to communicate to the saints in Rome. So he continues his greeting here to this beloved body of believers. And before we get to the theme, I want us to see something of Paul's heart. The title of the message is A Thankful, Encouraging, and Unashamed Heart. And to be an encourager as Paul was, and to be unashamed of the gospel as Paul was, uh, it all starts with thankfulness. Thankfulness as a recipient of the grace of God through Christ Jesus 
which makes any and all who are in Christ righteous. So here in his prayer report, basically what this is, uh, we, we learn about Paul's heart and his motives. We learn some theology here. We learn about proper love that Christians ought to have for one another. And, of course, we're introduced to Paul's passion. It's the gospel. Notice he says, first, I thank God for you all. This is a man who had a heart and mind of thanksgiving. This is a report of thanksgiving, basically. And he's thanking God for the testimony of these Roman Christians. The believers in the big city. Whose testimony was being declared throughout the world. And this is our first point. It's a thankful heart. And thankfulness is an essential Christian grace. Is it not, beloved? To, believe, to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be thankful. Because we are recipients of mercy, divine mercy, sovereign grace. And those who've received grace and those who are recipients of divine mercy and forgiveness are inherently thankful. It doesn't matter what circumstances they find themselves in whether it's facing difficult um, health problems, demanding family situations, or challenges at work. We're all in one of those three categories, I'm sure. Um, all in all and through it all, God's people are very thankful people. Because they know that regardless of what they face, we will never deserve, we will never receive what we deserve. We only deserve punishment. That's all we deserve. But because of the righteousness of Christ, we're freed from such punishment. He bore that punishment. How thankful ought we to be, beloved? Amen? Amen. This is a thankful man of God. Now, that does not mean that you will not go through struggles. Paul did. It does not mean that we won't doubt. I don't think Paul doubted. <laughs> but we do. You will pass through times of spiritual depression. Many of us will. But fundamentally, thanksgiving never leaves the people of God. We are grateful people because we're recipients of grace. Paul understood grace. Paul proclaimed grace. Paul, in the midst of all of his own challenges, struggles, labors, and pains, was a thankful man. So before he defines his prayer request, he begins with thanksgiving. I mean, after all, what did Jesus say? Those who are forgiven much, what? Forgive much. And those who are forgiven much, who in turn forgive much, thank God much. For that forgiveness. And so Paul begins with a lesson for us, doesn't he? It's a lesson of thanksgiving. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Verse 8, because, notice, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The representation of your faith, he's saying, has been broadcast throughout the cosmos. That's the word he uses, the entire world. Now, in one sense, he uses hyperbole here. Um, this is one of the many uses of the word world in the Bible, beloved. Um, 
when you read the word with the word world, it doesn't always mean that it's including every person of every place throughout every land. There is afterward, after all, uh, ten uses of the word world in the in the New Testament, and always depends upon context. I'm not going to cover those now, but here, uh, the world that is being spoken of is the known world, is the Mediterranean world, if you will, or the Roman world. And he's praying for Christians that he's never met, but he's heard of their faith, and he praises God for their faith. I mean, think how amazing this is, beloved. He, he loves these people. He's never met these people. A few years earlier, Paul was singularly devoted to ridding the world of Christians. We looked at that last week. There was no thing in the world, there was not a people in the world for whom he hated more than those of the way, than those who were Christians. And now that same man, albeit a new man in Christ, opens his letter by thanking God for Christians whom he has never met. And the faith that is within them is what he thanks God for. He thanks God for the Romans' faith. Now that leads me to take gentle issue with our Arminian friends in love, right? Because they don't believe that faith is solely a gift. They believe faith is something we do that prompts God's grace and salvation. But it's clear here that faith is a gift. Or why would Paul thank God for that faith? If faith was something that we engage God's grace and mercy with in order to be saved, then most certainly he would be thanking the Romans for their faith. Amen? But no, he thanks God for their faith. Why? Because God's the root. He's the source. He's the foundation of faith. Even faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8, declares that truth as well. Salvation is solely of God's sovereign grace. Every element of salvation, faith included, is a gift of God. And Paul thanks God for these people's faith. Verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, which is to say I, I vow before God. As God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, In the gospel of his son, without ceasing, I mention you. Again, let's not forget, this is a faithful man uh, who thanks God. He's such a thankful heart. God is my witness. Now, remember last time in the opening of this letter, Paul said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Dulos, I'm a slave of Christ. I am his servant. And at the same time, I'm his apostle. I'm a messenger, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. The gospel wasn't derived by me or any other man. This is God's gospel. This is God's good news. I simply proclaim this truth foretold by way of the prophets. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, that's who the prophets declared. Fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, who is the son of God. He's the substance. He is the heart of the gospel. Gospel. Good news. And galion, with the prefix you, 
Euangelion. We understand the prefix U-E-U, like in eulogy, to say good things about someone who's passed. Or in the electronic store, in the stereo hi-fi section, they call it the, the euphonic section, the euphonic sound section, meaning to sound good, a good sound, a pleasant sound. Here we have the good news of the Son of God. It's his gospel. I proclaim his gospel, and I'm so thankful that I'm not only called by God to be a servant of God, his slave, his apostle, but I thank him for your faith. The faith that we share. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, paving the way for Messiah, as the prophets declared. And then came Jesus, the king, who came preaching the arrival of that kingdom. If I cast out demons, if demons are cast out by the finger of God, the kingdom is upon you. When the king came, the kingdom came with him. And he established his kingdom. Where the long-awaited arrival of Messiah was now reality. The king had arrived. He established his kingdom. Preaching the good news of that kingdom. Living the perfect life. Upholding the law. Laying down his life as a sacrifice. Birthing forth in victory from the tomb. Ascending to the right hand of the Father. Where he rules and reigns. At the center of it all, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. What he has accomplished for sinners. That's the heart of Paul. That's what he's thankful for. He's thankful for the faith that he shares with the people for whom he has never met. How thankful are we? Notice the gospel is not Paul's testimony. See, the gospel is not our testimony, right? Many times you go to places and people say, I'm going to preach the gospel, and they give their testimony. I was this and now I'm this. That's not the gospel, right? That's not the gospel. It's a product of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the objective works of Jesus and how his works save sinners like me. So, Paul says, as God is my witness whom I serve in the gospel of his son, without ceasing I make mention of you. That's how thankful he is. Notice verse 10. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul mentions them not only as an illustration of God's divine salvific love, their faith, but he wants to visit them. He's bent on arriving at Rome to be with these people. Paul was a man of unceasing prayer. He has a shepherd's heart, constantly praying for the beloved churches that he witnessed God birth into life. And he prays for them, providing them with continuous, faithful, pastoral prayers. This is a thankful heart. This is the thankful heart of this apostle. And he wants to assure these fellow believers that by whatever means necessary, according to the will of God and according to the timing of God, he will make it to Rome. That's his intention. That's his desire. 
Now, he's most likely writing these Christians in Rome from Corinth. And he's preparing to get there. Everything within his ability, he's preparing to get there. He knows that these saints are frustrated, that they're awaiting the arrival of the great apostle Paul, spokesman for God himself. And Paul, not realizing at this point that he would indeed get there, and it would be by way of chains, according to the sovereign providential hand of God. May we trust in the providence of God, amen? Through the thick and thin, turbulent circumstances, turmoil, trouble, may we, as the recipients of grace, depend upon the providence of God to get us where he wants us to be. We can hope to go here. We can go, hope to go there, hope to do this, hope to do that, pray to do this, pray to do that, but it's always going to be according to the sovereign providential hand of God. Amen? So he knows that his arrival is outside of his control, so again, he speaks with regard to the sovereignty of God. Any success in coming to you will be according to the will of God, but I assure you my desire is to be there. That's the thankful heart. And when a Christian is thankful like Paul, it naturally flows into having an encouraging heart. Notice the second point, encouraging heart. Now, according to his pastoral concern, according to his shepherding heart, his desire is to visit because he wants to bring them some spiritual benefit, beloved. There's a purpose behind his desire to arrive there. Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift for what, beloved? To strengthen you. To strengthen you. Paul longs to see these believers in order to build them up in their already established faith. That's his desire. To confirm them in their faith, to edify them in their faith. He is not, by the way, referring to imparting some charismatic gift here, by the way. Okay? He is not. He's talking about building them up unto maturity in this already established faith. And that happens by way of preaching the whole counsel of God. Making disciples. To fortify them, to reinforce them, to strengthen them for the long haul, to encourage them to keep on running with endurance with this race in this race that is set before them, affixing their eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's the reason he's writing. That's the reason he desires to go. So in thanking God for the faith that saves, Paul wants to impart gifts of strengthening that will mature these fellow believers. Notice verse 12. That is, that we may mutually be encouraged by one another's faith. See, Paul was a man who wore many hats. He was an evangelist, pastor, disciple maker, theologian, Church planter, mentor. He wasn't simply a traveling preacher. This was no itinerant professor. This is a man who was with the people, building the people up in the truth, making disciples. And and, and he is not a proud man. This is the great apostle Paul. He's looking forward not only to encouraging them, beloved, but being encouraged by them as well. He knows 
that he will receive as much spiritual encouragement from them that he is going to give to them. What a great trade-off, amen? What a great trade-off. You know, you see this, this heart, the heart of Paul displayed, uh, for instance, in the letter to the Philippians. And he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, you compare that letter with Paul's two letters to the church of Corinth, a portion of which we read this morning, where you see the church in frustration, which seems to be on the verge of collapse. And Paul addresses them with rebuke. But here, Paul desires to be with the Romans to both encourage them and be encouraged by them. In a few weeks, I'm going to be with a great number of pastors from throughout the United States, actually from throughout the world. And every year, my hope is that according to the providence of God, I can provide them some encouragement. Because there's some that come who are so beat down, so discouraged, that whatever I can do by the grace of God to encourage them is a blessing to me. I've met some from the Ukraine who receive a lot of outside opposition. But I have to tell you, the majority of the pastors that I meet who are discouraged are discouraged by what they receive from their flock. That's terrible. And I believe that the reason I can be such an encouragement to them is because I don't have to put up with that. Thank you, by the way. R.C. Sproul was talking about this very same thing, and he said this, and I quote, So often the work of the pastorate in our day is an exercise in discouragement. The pastor's fair game for every criticism. Every Sunday afternoon, people have roast pastor for lunch. (laughs) And out of the 50 people that may meet him at the door, 49 might say, "Eh, I was encouraged by the message. Only be followed by the one who says, I don't think you should have said such and such. Where do you get off talking like that? Sproul goes on to say, with so many people throwing stones at you, it's good to receive encouragement from time to time. That's what many of them experience, and I want to be an encouragement to them because of the encouragement I receive from you. You see? You see how it flows? My heart breaks for these men. You wouldn't believe the stories. I mean, Paul faced this in Corinth. I long to see you that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. What do we see here for us, beloved? We see clearly the importance of corporate service, corporate ministry, corporate encouragement. There ought never to be in your thinking an attitude that your faith is either superior or inferior to the person sitting next to you or across the room. Your faith is important to the rest of the body because it was a gift to you by God. Amen? So we see that encouragement is reciprocal and it's biblical. It's mutual. Verse 13, he continues, I want you to know, brothers, 
that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, Paul here gives a defense as to why he hasn't arrived. Now, apparently, these Roman Christians thought Paul should have dropped everything to come to the great city of Rome. Okay? The apostle should come to Rome. After all, all the roads lead to Rome, right? It's like New York City. Hey, man, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is the big city. It has most influence. So well, you should come here, Paul. If you want to influence the world, get to Rome. But Paul makes it clear that his delay was not his doing. It wasn't his desire, but it was the Holy Spirit's. This Roman community was made up mostly of Gentile believers. Obviously, there were Jews who were saved at the time of Pentecost, and I believe, we believe, uh, Christian history believes that they were pushed out of Jerusalem in that area because of persecution. They ended up in Rome, and they had influenced others by evangelization, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul... You know, the story was the apostle to the Gentiles. And notice what he says in verse 14. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Here he speaks of two classifications of Gentiles in the first century. Greeks refer to the well-cultured, elitist intellectuals of the day. And barbarians are uh, the Gentile populace that didn't speak Greek. So they would be referred to in that day as people who sound when they talk like this, bar, 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 bar. Barbarians. And that repeated syllable, bar, bar, was actually to mimic those of foreign languages of the day. So Paul says, in effect, I'm under obligation to you as to those who have been given the reputation of being a barbar people as well as the elitists of the day, right? The wise and the foolish is not speaking of intelligence here, but about language and culture. The Greco-Roman culture viewed everything outside of their camp as foolishness. Paul was obligated to preach to them all. Aren't you glad for that? Obligated to them indirectly, but primarily obligated to Jesus Christ, amen, who is the gospel. He's obligated. An obligation to see to it that they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they, beloved, hear the whole counsel of God so that they can be encouraged and built up in the faith. And you can't be built up in faith unless you hear the whole counsel of God, all of the gospel. Because Paul says, look, God did something in me. God commanded something to me, and I am obligated, which means I am a debtor. Obligated. He sent his son to die in my place. On the road to Damascus, papers in hand to to kill Christians and have them jailed, he met me there. He united me to his son. United to Christ, born again. So Paul wants to think the way that Christ thinks. Paul wants to live his life the way God calls him to live his life. And he's obligated. He wants to do the will of the Father, that all nations will come to worship the Son. I'm obligated to Greeks. I'm obligated to barbarians. 
Question. Do we see duty and obligation in those terms, beloved? You know, many believers cringe when they hear the word duty. When they hear the word obligation, they say, whoa, wait a minute, that's kind of authoritarian, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a little legalistic? A lot of people say, when you become a Christian, you don't have to do anything. You just want to. When you become a Christian, you don't have to obey the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Jesus. You just want to. Not so. Paul says right here he's under obligation. And by the way, what happens when your want to no longer wants to? Is a husband called to love his wife? He's called to love his wife. He's obligated to love his wife. Hopefully he loves his wife. But whether he wants to or not, he has to. Amen. (laughs) Parents, you are obligated to love your children. Hopefully you want to love your children, but do you always feel like loving your children? You can only answer your question if you have children. No, you do not, but you do. You are obligated. (laughs) Those in Christ, obviously, the obligation certainly becomes less burdensome, does it not? Oh, he changes your want to, no doubt about it. But there's days you don't want to, but you're obligated. That's the point. That's right. Notice. So, verse 15, I'm eager. He's eagerly obligated. I know the obligation, and I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Eager to fulfill this obligation. I'm a debtor. And eager to fulfill my debt. Debt for what? To pay for his sin? No, it's already paid. It's in response to the gracious gift of God through Christ Jesus. He's preached it everywhere else. He's preached it in Asia Minor. He's preached it in Corinth. He's preached it in Athens. Now he wants to go to Rome. He's preached to the unsophisticated. He's preached to the sophisticated, the cultured, uncultured. The elite and the simple. And now he shows his desire to edify those in Rome. Is that the kind of spirit we have about Christian service to one another? There's a good applicable point. May we, by the grace of God, amen? May we be eager to encourage one another, to edify one another. Those are the marks of a heart that has been found by the grace of God. Those who are called by God, found by God, granted grace and mercy, this is the response. This is the heart. Their greatest delight is in the privilege of carrying out that which he commands. So Paul's eager obligation here is the gospel. And of that gospel, because he's so thankful... He's unashamed. You see, it all begins with thanksgiving, doesn't it? A heart of thanksgiving is one that is quick in wanting to encourage the brethren. So with a thankful heart comes encouragement, and with encouragement and thankfulness, there's an unashamed spirit. Notice his unashamed heart. 
This is the theme of the entire epistle, as I said earlier, verses 16 and 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Let me say that again. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, beloved. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The world believes it's foolishness. The world still believes it's foolishness. The Bible says it's the power of God unto salvation. To live for Christ in Paul's day was to face great antagonism, beloved. Oftentimes resulting in attack, beatings, being burned unto death. But Paul wasn't ashamed in spite of all. He's not ashamed. He's so thankful. He knows the price that was paid, so he's not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When I get there, that which is the message of salvation, I will declare, I assure you I'm not ashamed, beloved. Now, he's not opening the sentence here with an imperative, I'm not ashamed and don't you be either. That's not what this is. He's not giving us an imperative. We must be sure that we're not ashamed. He's just making a statement about himself. I am not ashamed, church at Rome. However, beloved, Paul's words do show us the heart of a true believer. They're not ashamed of the gospel. Regardless of how foolish it seems in the eyes of the unredeemed, sometimes Christians are ashamed. But sometimes Christians are ashamed of the gospel because they want things that are different from the things that God wants for them. Right? Many secrets are Christian uh, undercover agents. Undercover agents for Christ, if there is such a thing. Because they try so hard to fit into the world. They want to appear to be culturally cool all week. And then Sunday, sanctification day. They maintain a secularized identity all week, and then it's only on Sunday when they feel safe to embrace their professed faith, and they identify now with this sacred identification. Jesus was clear. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. See, if we seek, beloved, to gain something from this world, allowing the views of the world that persecute Christ and cause us to be ashamed of him, the Lord says that the response of the glorified Son of God will be the same. It's clear. When we're slighted or rejected enough times for our faith, many times we'll fold ourselves up into a shell. I mean, we all face this at time to time, amen? We've all been embarrassed about the faith. Let's be real, right? We've all failed. We continue to fail. We're all tempted. We're all pulled by people. We're all pulled by things every day that causes us to fear, which is connected with being ashamed of the gospel. And may we, by the grace of God, not be ashamed. Polycarp of Smyrna, Bishop in the early church, he wasn't ashamed. 
He stood before his opponents. He stood being roped to the stake to be burned in a ripe old age. And they gave him one last chance to denounce and renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. And he said this, I've served him for 86 years and he's done me no harm. How could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Well, only by grace. If you're going to be burned at the stake or have a sword thrust toward your throat for your faith, God will grant you the grace you need in that time. Amen? And not before. So you don't have to sit back and worry, would I take a bullet for the Lord? It doesn't matter. He'll grant you the grace. He will, right? But let's just deal with people laughing today. Let's just pray for the grace of God to give us the strength to endure that. Paul wasn't ashamed. He preached all aspects of the gospel. You know, preachers today, many are ashamed to preach the gospel. We know this, right? They're ashamed to preach the gospel. They are convinced that people will become bored by verse-by-verse exposition of the Bible. And they say, people don't need that. They need an esoteric experience. They need a sense of power. That's what they say. And it's always power that's attached to the experience. So they come up with all kinds of circus show events in a church setting, supposed healings, quote-unquote slayings in the spirit, which, by the way, are not biblical. There's no such thing as being slain in the spirit. But people are wanting this powerful experience. So these men ashamed of the gospel provide them these things, these mystical things, these seemingly powerful things, tactics to manipulate them and to receive in order that they can manipulate their own lives. To ward off sickness. To control people and circumstances for the betterment of self. That's the gospel being preached today. That's the Dale Carnegie gospel. Who wrote, you know, how to win friends and influence people. That's the gospel that's preached today by many. Because it's the power of self-gratification. Just say it and it will happen. The word of faith movement. That's not power. It's never the power of eloquence. It's never the power of education. It's never the power of energy. It's never the power of experience. It's the power that is in the gospel alone. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Amen? It's the gospel that's the power. My son was telling me, he lives in Los Angeles now, was telling me about someone he was sharing the gospel with. And he was telling me how great it made him feel. When you share the gospel and someone that's listening is receiving this and is inquisitive and desirous to know more, does it not make you feel great? Of course it does. And it should. The power that you sense is not in you. It's in the word proclaimed. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power. To the world, it's foolishness. Our reading this morning, 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, for Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is no weakness in God. 
That's the exaggeration that Paul uses to drive home a point. (laughs) It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first, also the Greek. There was an order in which the gospel was to be preached in the first century. It was to go to the ethnic Israel first and then to the Gentiles, proceeding unto the Gentile nations. Why? Well, the question Paul raises in chapter 3, which we'll get there in a few weeks, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All the prophetic truth that pointed forward to Christ came by way of the Jews. So there was a priority. The Jews first through whom God's word came. And, of course, the Jews were first in salvation opportunity and first in judgment responsibility. In other words, the more you know, the more you're accountable for. Same holds true today. So anyone sitting here who's not a Christian, but you come here week after week, and you're hearing this truth, you're deadly accountable. gospel's power to save. Notice verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul explains how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, doesn't he? Paul tells us the gospel reveals the very righteousness of God that's accredited to all those who believe by faith. A righteousness they can never supply on their own. Because you see, God's judgment, beloved, is never based on a curve. Never. Well, he was pretty good. I'll let him in. No. The standard is absolute holy perfection. To get to heaven, you have to be perfectly holy. And here he says that the gospel is where the very righteousness is made manifest and gifted to those who believe by faith. It's the righteousness of Jesus which is gifted to the sinner who believes. That's how people are saved. For people who need a righteousness who know they can't provide their own. Do you realize you can't provide your own? You're here this morning because you know that, hopefully, and you've received the righteousness of Christ through the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. Validated by way of the resurrection The father was pleased with the sacrifice of his son. He was pleased to crush his son, the righteous one. Paul declares the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the imputed righteousness provided for them in and through Christ. That's the gospel. That's why you're here today as a Christian, to rejoice in the finished work. Now, if we've been writing this, let's put yourself in Paul's shoes. We would write, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the grace of God is revealed. Or, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, for in it the mercy of God is revealed. Or, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because the love of God is revealed. All those things true? Amen. They are true. However, Paul says it's the righteousness of God revealed. Meaning what? That, he hasn't, that God has not merely cast your sins into the depth of the sea, or God hasn't merely just forgotten about your sins or swept them under the rug. He's dealt with them personally. He became sin, the one who knew no sin, in order to deem you righteous. He just doesn't forget sin. 
It's not just expiation. The word expiation means to, to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. But in salvation, it's not only expiation of sins, it's also propitiation, which means satisfaction. The father was fully pleased with the sacrifice of his son. There is no forgiveness without propitiation. God's pleased one way. He provides righteousness one way. It's through the crushing of his son. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Crushed for our iniquities. Bruised for our transgressions. So he doesn't merely just forget about this sin. He, he provides a, he has a righteous requirement and then he provides the righteousness in our place. That's grace. That's why this man is thankful. That's why this man is an encourager. That's why he's unashamed. Because this is the grace gift of God. God, he said, caused the penalty of my sin to fall upon his son. Justice is served. A righteousness that meets every requirement. And until a sinner understands he can't meet the requirement, he stands guilty and condemned. This is the one who was condemned to save sinners like you and me. So God in his own design has saved you by grace through the life, death, resurrection, albeit the righteousness of his son. That's the gospel. This is what Paul gets excited about, beloved. We're still in the introduction of Romans, not the sermon, but of Romans. (laughs) It is. He'll stop busting out the theology next week. The righteousness lived by what? Faith. Not merely believing in God or about God. Amen? See, you might be here this morning and you, oh, I believe about God. I believe in God. No. You must trust in him in the righteousness that he provides through his son. The reason I'm thankful, the reason I'm eager, the reason I'm unashamed, says Paul, is because I am and you are secure from the righteous wrath of God because of the imputed righteousness of the Son placed upon your account. That's why I must preach. That's why I long to come to you, he says. Amen? So all who are in Christ, beloved, are eternally secure. Because it would be wrong for God to punish them by trusting in the Son, who is indeed the very righteousness that is required to get to heaven. Therefore, you will never hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Because of this gift. And that's what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. Have you been the recipient of the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ the Son? If not, you can exchange today what God refers to as the filthy rags of your own righteousness for a pure and holy garment of God's own righteousness revealed through the gospel of his Son. Because at present, if you're not in Christ, you stand in the land of the lost. And you're confronted with the accomplished work 
of the cross. And if you're not a recipient by faith in the grace of the finished work of Christ, you're already judged. You stand condemned. That's the bad news. But if you confess your sin, if you admit to him that you are indeed lost, you realize you are under the curse of God, that you cannot perform what he requires and it's absolute holy perfection through every stage of life. When you come to that realization and you accept his verdict with regard to your sin and you admit your own lost condition and that he moves you to a place of utter brokenness, poor in spirit, realizing you're spiritually bankrupt, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, he will show you that he is satisfied with the death of his son on your behalf. And as a recipient of that gift, by repenting and believing into Christ alone, he says you are forgiven and you are beloved of the Lord and actually made righteous. If that's you, I say come to him this morning. Not up to here, but where you sit, to him, in spirit and in truth, where he clothes you in the garments of his righteousness, and it is then that you stand into the, step into the land of the saved. Once lost, but now what? Found. That's what this is all about. Redemptive history. Pointed forward to the cross of Calvary, fulfilled in Christ, New Testament point back, points back to that work. It is finished. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your unconditional love. We thank you for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your divine purposes, preserved over time that gives us a Bible to read in our own hands. Lord, we ask that you would increase in us a greater thankfulness and appreciation for what was accomplished on our behalf. Every one of us. I begin with myself. So that out of that thankfulness would flow a desire to edify one another, to encourage one another, and the faith that we share, this common faith, is recipients of grace that it might increase within us a strength of never being ashamed of the only thing that can save man. Help us in our weakness to be strong and to remember that in our weakness, we are made strong by your spirit through grace, the grace that we need to stand every day. Bless your people this day, I pray. And for anyone who has come in that doesn't know you, that is not a recipient of this grace, may this be the day the moment that they move from the land of the lost to stand in the land of the saved, recipients of grace and the righteousness for which you say we are called to live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.